If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, we're bringing you an editor's pick, in which a member of our team chooses one of their own personal highlights from our back catalogue. This episode was chosen for you by our deputy editor, Matt Elton. Matt wanted to revisit a conversation he had back in 2016 with the author and historian Catherine Merridale, based on her book Lenin on the Train. As Merridale herself puts it, it's about the most important railway journey in the 20th century. Vladimir Lenin's 1917 trip back to Russia from exile in Switzerland. It was an extraordinary journey in its own right, but also a pivotal historical moment, the effects of which were felt for years to come. When we start your book, where is Lenin and why, why was he there? At the beginning of the story, Lenin yes. is in Zurich. And he's in Zurich because he really can't almost be anywhere else in Europe. He's in exile from the Russian Empire because he's a revolutionary and he has two choices. He either leaves Russia or he's in prison because he's been convicted by the Tsarist courts. And he chooses to live in Switzerland because that's a neutral country. 
At the outbreak of the war, Lenin and his wife and a number of his friends were living in the Austro-Hungarian Empire on the border of what's now Poland in a little town. And as soon as the war broke out, the gendarmes came round, because Lenin is a Russian, so he's an enemy. And they came round and they searched the house and they found a Browning pistol behind some books in his house. And that was it. He was arrested, he was thrown into jail, and he was only pulled out of jail by a great many people pulling strings. And after that, he had to leave the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So that's why he's in Zurich. Actually, he liked Switzerland. Most revolutionaries were a bit iffy about Switzerland because they thought it was bourgeois. Trotsky hated it. He said the only thing the Swiss ever talk about is, is the shortage of potatoes. But Lenin liked it because it suited his sense of what's decent and what's proper. The libraries were great, the trains ran on time, the buses were clean. He had a little room in a street in Zurich and he could walk to the library in five minutes. I've done the same walk. And, and there he was. You know, he could just write his stuff. Everything was exactly the way he wanted it. And he was in the Swiss labour movement too, trying to organise a very, very tiny party into another split, because Lenin liked splitting parties. Um, so it was good for him. Did and he liked mountain walking too. Hmm. Did, he, did he feel out of it though? Did he, did he worry that things were going on without him? Um, after the war broke out? In Russia, yes. Um, he couldn't get Russian news very easily because, of course, Russia and Switzerland were separated by the front line and by the hostile ter territory of both the Austro-Hungarian and the German empires. And the only way he could get news was by buying the Zürcher Post or uh, some Swiss newspaper or other. And the, the Russian news would be two or three days old. And he used to fume about that. He used to walk down to the lake, buy the paper and spit over it. But he was spitting over two-day-old news, which was rather frustrating. It still let him write rude things about what's happening in Russia. Of course, he was always going to do that. But he was cut off. All he could do was try and organise the European socialist movement, which being Lenin, naturally he did, because he wasn't going to sit around doing nothing. And so what he was trying to do was to push the European socialist movement further to the left during the war in the direction of absolute hostility to the First World War, no cooperation with the war, instant peace, rather than we have to fight this war because we have to defend our countries, which was, of course, the position of the German Social Democrats, or a lot of them. He seemed very concerned to kind of spread dissent and to spread divisions between the movement as a way of helping that, didn't he? What he was trying to do was, his view was always, I would rather lead a party of one than be wrong. You know, I'd rather have two people with me than be with this large party of people who are just simply going to lead the revolution down a blind alley. Um, Solzhenitsyn, in his book Lenin in Zurich, portrays him as this monster who was constantly saying, split, 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 because it's a way of being in charge of something. It wasn't quite as simple as that. Lenin actually really, and the reason he's successful is because he deeply believes that the war is a capitalist war and that there is no peace possible all the while the bourgeoisie are in charge. And because he believes that, he goes on fighting for it and he's prepared to split and split infinitely to get that outcome. Who were the people that were involved in putting together this scheme to transport him by train? Well, when the Russian Revolution happened, which we have to go back to, if you like, February, March 1917. It happened in February in Russia in March in Europe because the Russian Empire was 13 days behind, which makes life a bit complicated. We'll call it the February Revolution just for the sake of argument. Um, but he got the news, of course, in March in Zurich. Um, he was desperate to get back to Russia and take control, desperate. I mean, he was punching the air, he was shouting, he was telling all his friends, you've got to get me a passport, any passport, we can fake it, we can do anything. He even thought about flying back, which would have been fatal, flying over the German lines and in very primitive aircraft, and how was he going to find one anyway? Um, so he was really keen to do it, but he knew that if he crossed Germany, which was the only way to get out of Switzerland, 
um, he would compromise himself. So for a long time, because he would be a Russian crossing the territory of Russia's enemy, and that would make him a traitor. So for a long time, he, he, he didn't want to accept that option. He wanted to try anything else. And the only other way he could have done it would have been to go through France and Britain and take a steamer from Newcastle to Scandinavia and then go that way. But he was convinced the British would arrest him, which they probably would have done. They arrested Trotsky in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and held him. So he was right to be nervous. Um, so gradually he came round to the idea that maybe going through Germany was an, exceptional, was an acceptable option. And the people who persuaded him, there was a man called Radek, who was a very colourful character, very attractive, very interesting. Everybody liked him. Arthur Ransom, who was living in Russia at the time, was very fond of Radek. They were close friends. Women fell all over him. Uh, and he was at the time in Switzerland, and he had this idea that perhaps going back through Germany would, would be possible. And the reason Radek got there to that thought was that before 1917, there had been this incredibly colourful figure called Parvus, this revolutionary called Parvus, who came from Odessa, and who, by various means, fair and foul, became a multimillionaire as a result of wartime speculation, and was working partly with the German government. And Parvus had a base in Copenhagen and used Russian revolutionaries as researchers there and had got passes for... Russians to go through Germany as part of that project. And so through Parvus, Radek had this experience that it is possible to get German cooperation without compromising yourself. Now, Parvus is one of the big characters in the story, really. He's very, very interesting and very charismatic. An enormously fat man with a cigar, always had a blonde on one arm. When he went to uh, Zurich to, to see Lenin, he booked himself into the Borolak. Well, when I travelled on the same journey, I went to the Borolak to look at it. But I talked in my little hotel, I said, what would happen if I went to the Borolak? I said, the Borolak? Of course, that's where the whole of FIFA were arrested. You remember, that's, that's the kind of hotel it is. It's not my sort of hotel at all. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Parvus's, and he was in a suite there for weeks, um, you know, trying to charm the Russian revolutionaries with his money. Uh, but he was constantly in touch with the German government about the possibility of fermenting revolution in Russia in order to pull Russia out of the war. Um, so Parvus was to some extent the impresario of this, even though Lenin didn't have any formal public contact with him. Did Lenin have any qualms about getting involved in this scheme? Huge qualms partly because he didn't want to be thought of as a traitor and partly because he didn't want to be thought publicly to be having any contact with Parvus because Parvus was known to be a, a, a character who was very ambiguous. Nobody knew whether he was a revolutionary or a traitor, a spy for Germany, and they all thought that he wasn't a pucker revolutionary for some reason or other, and they had their theories about him, not least because he was so rich. You mentioned the February Revolution there. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's been overlooked in other tellings of this wider uh, story? About the train or about the revolution as a whole? Both, I suppose. Well, it's interesting that people, they tend to forget it. It goes out of view so often when, when we think about the Russian Revolution. It's often a footnote to it. 
there are a couple of very good books. The book that resurrected the February Revolution was Orlando Feige's People's Tragedy. And for a while, people did start thinking about the February Revolution after that, but that was a few years ago and it's disappeared a bit. If you talk in Russia to people, they always think about October, the great October Socialist Revolution. You can't call February the great February anything, can you? <laughs> the great February liberal democratic <laughs> failed revolution. Yeah. difficult. So when we come to Lenin making this journey, um, what was that physically like? And who were his fellow passengers, is the other question. Well, uh, first of all, there were a lot of people who were very hostile. Among his friends and contacts in Switzerland, a lot of people said, don't do it. It is treason to accept German help. And back in Russia, the new liberal, democratic, bourgeois, whatever you want to call it, provisional government, had a foreign minister called Paul Milukov, who said he would arrest anybody who accepted German help going back to Russia, because that was consorting with the enemy. Uh, so there were a number of people in Switzerland who said, you cannot do this. But Lenin had also friends who were prepared to take the risk. Ines Armand, his lover and friend who was in France at the time but came to Switzerland to travel with him. A Georgian called Mika Tskakaya who, was, who said, you tell me to come, I'll be there tomorrow, I won't even bring, bring a suitcase. And he didn't. When he went on the journey, he came with no luggage at all except probably a knife between his teeth. I always think of Skakaya like that. Um, obviously his wife, Krupskaya. Zinoviev, Grigory Zinoviev, who was uh, always a, a close friend of, of Lenin's um, and would have done anything to stay with Lenin. He was with him in exile throughout the war period. And he had a wife and he also had a first wife. So his second wife traveled and so did his first wife, um, Olga Ravitch, which created trouble, Radek traveled. And they needed an interpreter because the deal was the Russians would have no contact with the Germans at all on the crossing through Germany. So they could take a normal train through Switzerland, but once they got to the border with Germany, they could not. Um, have any contact with the Germans, but they needed German guards. So they took a Swiss revolutionary called Fritz Platten, who was the go-between. They go through Switzerland on an ordinary Swiss train, leaving Zurich there heckled and hissed, and it's quite difficult for them. They're worried, they don't know what's going to happen. They get to the border between Switzerland and Germany, and they all have to get off the train. And at this point, the saddest thing, I think, it must have been so difficult for them, because Russians, when they travel, always take their food. They know that this is something you have to do. They're very good at long-distance travel, and they still are. And whenever I travel long distances in Russia, I'm always amazed by how good Russians are at this. And they would have had baskets and baskets of food, which Platon had secured for them. When they got to the border, the Swiss announced that there were customs regulations about taking food out of Switzerland and took all the food off them. So that was their first shock. Their second shock was they were searched again, so they were searched twice, and then they get across the German border and they're made to line up, men on one side, women on the other. They're terrified. There are two German guards waiting who are going to travel with them, German military officers. This is, they don't know, are we going to be arrested? Are we going to be shot? What's going to happen? And eventually they're simply counted aboard a single carriage which is going to be pulled by a succession of German engines through German territory. And it's a single carriage with a number of compartments, two first class, three standard class, because Lenin said, we, well, actually, it's not first class, it's two second class and three third class. He said, we don't want luxury. We can't afford it. We're going to pay for our own tickets. So although the Germans could have, you know, for the money it was costing them to do this, they could have given them anything. They gave them exactly what they asked for, a normal carriage. And near the back, there was a chalk line drawn, and that was the international boundary. So on one side of the 
Prussians and on the other side of the Germans, and they may not cross that boundary. Unfortunately, there are only two lavatories in this carriage, one at the back for the two German guards and one at the front for 34 Russians. And that is the only place the Russians may smoke, and all Russians tended to smoke. So there was always a long queue of people waiting to use the loo for the real purpose while somebody was in there having it back. So Lenin introduced some of his communist discipline and people were given tickets. First class ticket, you're using the loo for its real purpose. Second class ticket, you're smoking and you have to, to leave it if somebody with the first class <laughs> ticket comes to the door. <laughs> it must have been the most uncomfortable journey because there was no real hot water. There was nowhere to sleep. I've done the journey, but I stayed every night in a comfortable place or I slept in a coupe. To do it sitting up and with very little food and not knowing what's going to happen next, and then travelling through wartime Germany, surrounded by hostile faces, thin faces, tired people, no men because they're all at the front. Now, the Russians had been segregated from the war by being in Switzerland. They hadn't seen what the war was doing. And this is the first time they've actually been out of Switzerland and seen there are no men. There's no money. The people are starving. They're pale. They hate us. People came to the window of the carriage with pictures of newspapers with, you know, the Tsar has gone and, and heckled them. It must have been very frightening indeed. But they, they uh, sang. They sang the Marseillaise until they were told to stop because it wasn't a good idea in Germany. <laughs> um, and when they, they got to Frankfurt, a number of Germans pushed their way onto the train with beer and sausages, which was probably quite welcome. All the Radek said the beer wasn't very good. And then they went on to Berlin and, and then onto the coast, and that was their German crossing. Mm. How long did the whole journey take? The whole thing took eight days. Mm. They left in the afternoon of one Monday, and they arrived nearly at midnight on a Monday, a week later. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. 
Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And what sort of, you've done the journey. Yes. And what was that like? It was wonderful. It was so exciting. Yeah. It was interesting in all sorts of ways. I mean, it's interesting that European trains are so much better than British ones and that you could book every single journey from my desk and print every single ticket and then the train would be there and exactly where it said it was going to be and exactly on time. And presumably that was the same with Lenin. He probably had the benefit of wartime European trains. But the, the other thing that was interesting was, on the one hand, people said... They had no idea about Lenin. I would, everywhere I went, I asked. And for instance, in, in Malmo, in Switzerland, Lenin and his party had dinner. They were only in the Savoy Hotel in Malmo for about 45 minutes. But it was a big dinner and it was a big occasion. And there's a brass plaque in the hotel commemorating that. And the woman on reception was from Moscow. And I said to her, can you show me the brass plaque commemorating when Lenin was here? And she said, John Lenin? And I had to push her to, oh, you know, Vladimir Ilyich. And she didn't really remember Lenin at all because the, the new generation in Russia, he's not an important figure for them. And she couldn't believe anybody wanted to talk about him. So on the one hand, he's forgotten. And on the other hand, he's everywhere. You know, Berlin, we stayed in Berlin. There it is, you know, the trabbies on the street, East Berlin, West Berlin, that's all down to Lenin. The shape of Finland now bears the scars of wars. Germany bears the scars of wars that were largely started because of the creation of the Soviet Union and National Socialism to oppose it. Uh, so Lenin is everywhere and yet he's nowhere. So what impact did Lenin make when he finally arrived? Well, he arrived just before midnight on Easter Monday, which was very inconvenient for the local communists because they had no means of creating a, a big event because it was Easter and they weren't sure when he was going to get there. But nonetheless, the Bolsheviks were very good at organisation and they did put on something for him. They, they had a bush telegraph around the factory district. They managed to get a military band. They managed to decorate the Finland station with flowers and banners and red flags. All the sorts of things that Lenin wasn't... He didn't know what was going to happen to him. He thought maybe he was going to be arrested, hanged. He had no idea. He'd been preparing his fellow passengers for the idea that they might be arrested and that he, as a lawyer, would represent them and they were not to say anything. The usual Lenin control freak. Um, when he got off the train, he was stunned by the reception he got. Now, after eight days and nights, I would have been very tired. Lenin was so energetic. He started straight away haranguing the crowd right there in the station. He pushed his way through the imperial waiting room, straight out into the crowd in the square outside the Finland station. Eventually, they pushed him up onto an armoured vehicle that they got. Uh, they weren't sure what they were going to use it for, but they used it as a platform for Lenin to address the crowd, and then they drove him through the streets. And I have this picture of him you know, sort of shouting and waving his fist into the night all the way from the Finland station to Bolshevik Party headquarters after eight days and nights on the train, without a break, without missing a beat, always giving the same message. And some people said, you know, this is a traitor, we should stick a bayonet into him. But most people were just saying, I can't believe he's really saying it. What's he saying? He's saying... We should declare peace, give in immediately, no support for the provisional government. But we've just you know, got the provisional government. This is what, what is he doing? He's mad. He's come from abroad. He doesn't understand. Mm. And then he made a speech from the mansion, 
that the balcony of the mansion where the Bolsheviks had their headquarters, a requisitioned ballerina's mansion, very beautiful. He leant out of the balcony and addressed the crowd again at probably half past one in the morning. There was a crowd in, in April in St. Petersburg. And then he went in and told his party the same thing. And this is the famous April Theses, which at the time people said he's lost his mind. Even his wife said, I'm afraid Lenin's gone a bit funny. But within three weeks, because he was determined, he never gave up and he was patient and he was organised, just pushing his line at the party. He managed to persuade them to change their policy. And that became the Bolshevism that, that eventually won the day in November. How, I mean, how decisive was his intervention? Completely decisive. If he had not come back, the Bolshevik party was preparing unity talks with the Mensheviks. And the war effort was continuing. And the idea was that through a multi-party Soviet, the workers' interests would be protected by their own representatives. And the provisional government would take charge of high politics, international relations and the war. And Lenin completely blew that out of the water. He pulled the Bolsheviks away from the other socialist parties and made them into something distinctive and extreme and strange and unprecedented. A lot of people thought it wouldn't work. And it only worked, really, because the war went so badly. It only worked because, as the war went badly and as the provisional government was shown up to be unable to represent the interests of the, the bulk of the population. And as the Soviet was groping for a way through that, the Bolsheviks were the only party that was uncompromised, had never done a deal with anybody, had always argued for the extreme position. And a lot of people supported the Bolsheviks just because they thought they were the most extreme. These are the ones that talk the toughest line. These have to be the right. Even if we don't quite know what they stand for, they must be okay. Has writing this book changed your view of Lenin or developed it? Well, I was a student in Moscow in the 80s and I went to see Vladimir Ilyich in his mausoleum and he was very dead. And <laughs> Vladimir Ilyich, and in a brown suit. And Vladimir Ilyich is everywhere around us. You know, everywhere I went, every archive I worked in, there was the bust, you know, and he's not actually the sexiest man on the planet. Uh, even Karl Marx has got a, an edge on him. That, so Lenin to me was just something like an old piece of furniture and irritating and dowdy. And of course, from some of my other work, working on the results of the Bolshevik revolution and the oppression that followed and the terrible tragedies for people in Russia. So he wasn't a character that I warmed to. And what I wanted to do with this book was to, because one of the policies I always have with my writing is if there's something I don't understand or don't particularly like, it's time to go and look harder at it. And I wanted to see what Lenin was like at the time when he was really explosive, when he really was the fiery revolutionary and not the, the marble bust, before he became dead. And I think I've done that for myself. I think I do understand why he was so powerful, why he was so charismatic, not as a leader of people. I don't suppose... If you passed him in the street, you'd have thought, wow, that's a big leader. But a man who could operate within a party and a man whose ideas drove him like no other person, I think, of his generation. And I can understand that now. You write that all of the foreign actors who are involved in this story lost out. Mm. Um, who suffered the most and how long-lasting were the consequences? Well, foreign actors as opposed to Russians, because I think the people who, who suffered the worst were the Russians from the Russian Revolution and what happened to them what is still happening, because to some extent 
we're still watching the playing out of, of that drama. The Germans probably suffered the worst. Uh, if you think about what happened as a result of this, for one thing, Zimmermann, Arthur Zimmermann, the person who was responsible for signing the, the pieces of paper that got Lenin's train in the first place, well, he was a disaster. He was a disaster because he had this idea of doing foreign policy through plotting and scheming and clever you know, cunning plots. And his cunning plot before Lenin was the Zimmermann telegram to try and get Mexico into the war on the German side, and that brought in the United States. So to some extent, he lost the war for Germany even before he let Lenin through. Then he let Lenin through and created the Soviet Union indirectly. I mean, he's partly responsible for the creation of the Soviet Union. And if you think about what that meant for the future of Germany, in the very short term, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was very beneficial to Germany. Getting Russia out of the war was the only hope Germany had of not losing it in 1917, 1918. But thereafter, the consequences were catastrophic. So I think Germany probably was number one sufferer. <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to the route, actually, I forgot to ask this. How hard was it for you to actually trace the route that he took? The hardest bit was Sweden. Mm -hmm. Not because there aren't lots of accounts, but because they're all wrong. Um, and what, what was helpful um, was talking to somebody in the Swedish Railway Museum who was able to produce, they must have such a fantastic archive, she was able to produce the timetable for the week Lenin went through Sweden and send it to me, uh, which was really helpful because everybody else has sent Lenin up a railway line that didn't exist in 1917, wasn't built. And there is even a book which sends him across the Baltic by sea, which he didn't do. So there, there are very few, and the Russians themselves didn't write very accurate accounts because they were more interested in telling the story of Ilyich's journey. And so Ilyich was sitting here and we watched him eat a biscuit and that's something we have to put into our memoirs because everything Ilyich did, we have to record. So they weren't necessarily looking at the route. Uh, tracing the route is difficult in Sweden now because the trains no longer go through the most interesting place, which is Haparanda Tornio, which is a border post Haparanda is on the Swedish side, Tornio is on the Finnish side. And in the First World War, this was the hotspot in Europe. It was the most important entrepot for mail, for freight, for war material, and for people traveling between the Western allies, the Entente powers, and Russia, their ally. There was no other land route between the two. And so we reckon, uh, well, the Germans actually said that the British relied on Haparanda to win the war. Nobody knows where it is now. Um, but I went there and I worked in the archive with the staff there. They were fantastic. And they brought out all these photographs of Haparanda in the wall. And it was buzzing. It was like another city, but it was built of crates. Everywhere you look, there were crates of freight, war material, food. And then there were people passing through. Every politician, every diplomat had to go through this route. But there's now no rail link through there. So you have to go by bus which made it sort of uncomfortable and a little bit exciting. Um, you write in the book about parallels with the situation today. Mm -hmm. What do you think those parallels are and what can we learn from studying this history? Well, the thing that most strikes me is watching the great powers and particularly reading the, the British documents in, in the National Archives. It is very striking that the British were thinking only of British interests in everything they did that concerned Russia. There were very few people who knew Russia very well, very few, or who actually tried to understand what was happening there. 
for the most part, they tried to imagine the revolution hadn't really happened. They didn't want it to have happened. And at first, they tried to cover up the news of it. So there are little jottings on memoranda from Sir George Buchanan, who's the British ambassador in St. Petersburg, saying, you know, keep this quiet. Don't let this out. Eventually, of course, they had to. Um, so they don't want the revolution to have happened. The fact that it has happened means they have to find people to deal with. But the people they want to deal with are people like them. So they don't want to believe that they have to treat Russia differently and that Russia is going to have to find a very different route forward now. And that impedes their ability to create policy that's going to work for everyone. And in the end, therefore, they're making policy that doesn't work terribly well for them. Britain's long-term interest was clearly they wanted Russia as a trade partner after the war. And by thinking only of that, they weren't thinking about what Russia's problems were likely to be and how Russia might be seeing them. To what extent was this then a journey that changed the world? Totally. <laughs> it, was a, it was the most important railway journey made in the 20th century, unquestionably. And that's why it's exciting. And because railways are so romantic, you can't have the most, Im most important airline journey made in the 20th century. Not quite the same, <laughs> is it? Well, the most important motorbike ride. Um, but it really was. It, without it, there would have been no Soviet Union. That, I think, is unquestionable. Lenin would not have gone back. And if Lenin had not gone back, there would be no Soviet Union. That was Catherine Merrydale. We'll have more editor's picks coming up for you over the Christmas period, so keep refreshing your feed for those. And if you've got some time to kill between the board games and the mince pies, then head over to historyextra.com for a whole treasure trove of podcasts, articles and quizzes on all things historical. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.